I know there are many people that helped to uh, arrange, arrange this event. I just want to thank personally the two people with whom I was most closely involved. Ari, of course, and Fran Solmar, whom I've been in touch, and we went, back, we went to high school together about 10, 15 years ago. <laughs> and I just want to thank her, both of them, and, and all of you for welcoming me and hosting me so graciously. And it's been a real joy to be here. I'm going to speak this morning um, on a little different topic. We've been talking about medieval Jewish mysticism, the symbolism and the history of the Zohar. And today what I want to do is uh, compare uh, Kabbalah and contemporary cosmology, the theory of the Big Bang. I'm not equating the two. I'm not trying to equate the two. I just want to show certain resonances, certain parallels between Kabbalah and Big Bang cosmology. Uh, it's a pretty demanding talk. Uh, if I see anybody nodding off, uh, I will not hold it against you. But I think it's very stimulating and very juicy. I'm going to speak for about 40 minutes, and then I'll be happy to take uh, some questions if they're not too difficult. <laughs> and let me ask also, uh, when I finish speaking, I'd like us just to sit uh, for a moment of silence. We did that last night kind of in the middle. Here I'd like to finish my remarks and just have us sit for a moment or two to drink in the silence before we move to uh, the questions and answers. In the beginning was the Big Bang, 14 billion years ago. The primordial vacuum was devoid of matter, but not really empty, rather in a state of minimum energy, pregnant with potential, teeming with virtual particles, through a quantum fluctuation, a sort of bubble in this vacuum, there emerged a hot, dense seed, smaller than a proton, yet containing all the mass and energy of our universe. In less than a trillionth of a second, this seed cooled and expanded wildly, inflating into the size of a basketball. The expansion then slowed down but it has never stopped. In its first few seconds, the universe was an undifferentiated soup of matter and radiation. It took a few minutes for things to cool down enough for nuclei to form, and at least 300,000 years for atoms to form. For eons, clouds of gas expanded. Huge glimmering balls of hot gas formed into stars Deep within these stars, nuclear reactions gave birth to elements such as carbon and iron. When the stars grew old, they exploded, spewing these elements into the cosmos. Eventually, this matter was recycled into new solar systems. Our solar system is one example of this recycling, a mix of matter produced by cycles of stars, stars forming and exploding. We, along with everything else, are literally made of stardust. The Earth took shape and began cooling down about four and a half billion years ago. By about a billion years later, various microorganisms had developed. Exactly how, no one knows. We do know that Earth's early atmosphere was composed of hydrogen, water vapor, carbon dioxide, and simple gases such as ammonia and methane. In such a climate, organic compounds 
may have synthesized spontaneously. Or perhaps life drifted to Earth in the form of spores from the planet Mars or from another solar system in our galaxy or another galaxy in the universe. However life began, all its forms share similar genetic codes and can be traced back to a common ancestor. All living beings are cousins. We humans like to think of ourselves as the pinnacle of creation. And it's true, we are the most complicated things in the universe. Our brain contains 100 billion cells linked by 100 trillion synaptic connections. Yet we are part of the evolutionary process descended from bacteria who lived three and a half billion years ago. Our species, Homo sapiens, is a primate that developed in Africa, splitting away from the chimpanzee line about seven million years ago. We still share with the chimps 99% of our active genes. If you'll pardon the expression, we are an improved ape. The Big Bang is a theory, not a fact. To cosmologists, it offers the most convincing explanation of the evolution of the universe the best approximation to truth that we currently possess. It may be proven wrong. More likely, it will eventually be enfolded into a larger theory. The scientific consensus is that the Big Bang Theory is correct within a specific domain. The evolution of our universe from perhaps one billionth of a second after its origins up to the present. Whatever happened before that first fraction of a second lies beyond the limits of the theory. The term Big Bang suggests a definite beginning, a finite time ago. But the theory does not extend that far. The ultimate origin of the universe is still unfathomed. One version of the theory known as eternal inflation was developed in part by Andre Linda, of Stanford. This version portrays a universe that by continually reproducing itself attains immortality. Our universe is just one of countless baby universes, one of countless inflating, self-reproducing balls or bubbles. In each of these bubbles, the initial conditions differ. Diverse kinds of elementary particles interact in unimagined ways. Perhaps different laws of physics apply in each. Not all of these domains inflate into large bubbles, but those that do, like ours, dominate the volume of the universe and sprout other bubbles in a perpetual chain reaction. The entire universe, you might say, is a tree of life, a cluster of bubbles attached to each other, growing exponentially in time. Each baby universe is born in what can be considered a big bang, or should we say a little bang, a fluctuation of the vacuum followed by inflation. If these speculations are correct, perhaps we should translate the opening words of the Torah not as in the beginning, but in a beginning, God created heaven and earth. In fact, this represents a more literal rendering of the original Hebrew, Bereshit, in a beginning. Science has no consensus on the ultimate origin. 
Some theories espouse a well-defined beginning. Others, like Stephen Hawking's, do not. But both suggest a radically new reading of Genesis. If God spoke the world into being, the divine language is energy. The alphabet, elementary particles. God's grammar, the laws of nature. Many scientists have sensed a spiritual dimension in the search for these laws. For Einstein, discovering the laws of nature was a way to see how God thinks. But does the universe have a purpose? Is there meaning to our existence? Why should we live ethically? Here, cosmology cannot help us very much. Charles Darwin intensifies our problem. Are we really different from other animals? Can we transcend violence and savagery? As the wife of an Anglican bishop remarked upon hearing of Darwin's theory, descended from apes? My dear, let us hope that it is not true. But if it is, let us pray that it will not become generally known. <laughs> Her comment echoes the fear that knowing the true nature of our ancestors threatens to unravel the social fabric. We have lost our myth. A myth is a story, imagined or true, that helps us make our experience comprehensible by offering a construction of reality. It's a narrative that transforms chaos into order. We're not content to see events as unconnected as inexplicable, we crave to understand some underlying order in the world. A myth tells us why things are the way they are and where they came from. Such an account is not only comfortable, assuring, and socially useful, it's essential. Without a myth, there is no meaning or purpose to life, just vast emptiness. Myths do more than explain. They guide our mental processes, conditioning how we think, even how we perceive. Myths come to life by serving as models for human behavior. On Friday evening, as my family begins Shabbat, I sometimes imagine God, having created the world in one very packed week, finally taking a break. Shabbat vayinafash, the Torah says, God rested and was refreshed. This mythical image enables me to pause, to slow down, to appreciate creation. By observing Shabbat, I'm imitating the divine. Order reemerges out of the impending chaos of life. But what do we do when the myths of tradition have been undone? When the God of the Bible seems so unbelievable? Is there really someone up there in control, charting the course of history, reaching down to rescue those in need, tallying up our good and bad deeds for reward and punishment? Many people have shed the security of traditional belief. They're more likely to experience a gaping, aching void than the satisfying fullness of God's presence. If people believe in anything these days, perhaps it's science and technology. And what does science provide in exchange for our belief? Progress in every field except for one. 
the ultimate meaning of life. Some scientists insist that there is no meaning. As one leading physicist has put it, the more we know about the universe, the more it is evident that it is pointless and meaningless. The Big Bang, you might say, is a contemporary creation story. Energy turns into matter, which turns back into energy. There is no precise plan for creation worked out in advance. Rather, by an intricate and unrepeatable combination of chance and necessity, humanity has evolved from and alongside countless other forms of life over billions of years. But ultimately, our evolutionary history is uplifting. It enables us to see that we are part of a wholeness, a oneness. To be religious means, in the words of another contemporary physicist, to have an intuitive feeling of the unity of the cosmos. This oneness is grounded in scientific fact. We are made of the same stuff as all of creation. Everything that is, was, or will be started off together as one infinitesimal point, the cosmic seed. Life has since branched out, but this should not blind us to its underlying unity. The deepest marvel is the unity in diversity, the vast array of material manifestations of energy. Becoming aware of the multifaceted unity can help us learn how to live in harmony with other human beings, with all beings, with all our fellow transformations of matter and energy. If the Big Bang is our new creation myth, the story that explains how the universe began, then who is God? God is a name we give to the oneness of it all. How can you name oneness? How can you name the unnameable? The Kabbalah offers a number of possibilities. One, as we've seen, is Ein Sof. Literally, there is no end. Ein Sof is the infinite. Or to borrow a phrase from the Christian mystic, Meister Eckhart, the God beyond God. Sometimes the Kabbalists use a more radical name than Ein Sof. This is the name Ayin, nothingness. We encounter this bizarre term among Christian mystics too. John Scotus Origena, writing in Latin, calls God Nihil. Meister Eckhart in German, Nicht. John of the Cross in Spanish, Nada. What does it mean to call God nothingness? This doesn't mean that God does not exist. Rather, it conveys the idea that God is no thing. God animates all things and cannot be contained by any of them. God is the oneness that is no particular thing, no thingness. This mystical nothingness is neither empty nor barren. It is fertile and overflowing, engendering the myriad forms of life. The mystics teach that the universe emanated from divine nothingness. Similarly, as we have seen, Cosmologists speak of the quantum vacuum, teeming with potential, engendering the cosmic seed. This vacuum is anything but empty, a seething froth 
of virtual particles constantly appearing and disappearing. How did the universe emerge out of this prolific nothingness? According to Kabbalah and classical Big Bang theory, this transition was marked by a single point. Physicists call this point a singularity, an infinitely dense point in space-time. A singularity is both destructive and creative. Anything falling into a singularity merges with it, losing its identity, while energy emerging from a singularity can become anything. The laws of physics do not apply to that split second in which energy or mass emerges. According to the 13th century Kabbalist Moses de Leon, quote, the beginning of existence is the secret concealed point. This is the beginning of all the hidden things which spread out from there and emanate according to their species. From a single point, you can extend the dimensions of all things, unquote. As emanation proceeds, as God begins to unfold, this point expands into a circle. Similarly, ever since the Big Bang, our universe has been expanding. We know this thanks to the astronomer Edwin Hubble, who measured the speed at which other galaxies are moving away from us. In 1929, Hubble determined that the farther a galaxy is from us, the faster it's moving away. The universe is expanding in all directions. It's not that the universe is expanding within space. Space itself is somehow expanding. The most dramatic consequence of Hubble's discovery is what it tells us about the origin of our universe. Just play the Hubble tape in reverse. If the universe is now expanding, that means it was once much smaller. How small? If we go back far enough in space-time, if we retrace the paths of the galaxies, the entire mass energy of the universe contracts into the size of a singularity, that infinitesimal point from which the cosmos flashed into existence. One Kabbalist, Shimon Lavi, understands expansion as part of the rhythm of creation. Let me read this in Hebrew and English, line by line. This is a Kabbalist writing in the 16th century. Ki ha'or nitrachev ha'olam. With the appearance of the light, the universe expanded. Uvigenizato nivru kol hanimtsaim leminehem. With the concealment of the light, the things that exist were created in all their variety. Zehu sod yavin. This is the mystery of the act of creation. One who understands will understand. Let me read that again just in the English this time. With the appearance of the light, the universe expanded. With the concealment of the light, the things that exist were created in all their variety. This is the mystery of the act of creation. One who understands will understand. When light flashed forth, time and space began. But the early universe was an undifferentiated soup of energy and matter. How did matter emerge from that stew? The mystic writes 
that the light was concealed. A scientist would say that energy congealed. Matter is frozen energy. No nucleus or atom could form until some of the energy cooled down enough that it could be bound and bundled into stable particles of matter. Einstein discovered the equivalence of mass and energy. Ultimately, matter is not distinct from energy, but simply energy that has temporarily assumed a particular pattern. Matter is energy in a tangible form. Both are different states of a single continuum, different names for two forms of the same underlying thing. Like the physicist, the mystic too is fascinated by the intimate relation of matter and energy, though the mystical description is composed in a different key. Material existence emerges out of ion, that pool of divine energy. Ultimately, the world is not other than God. Because this divine energy is concealed within all forms of being. If it were not concealed, there would be no individual existence. Everything would dissolve back into oneness or no thingness. Around the middle of the 16th century, in the mountaintop city of Tzfat, Safed, in Galilee, the most famous Kabbalist who ever lived, Isaac Luria, pondered creation, and he asked himself, what came before? Luria believed there was only Ein Sof, God as infinity. But if Ein Sof pervaded all space, how could there be room for anything other than God? Luria concluded that the first act of creation was not emanation, the divine flow, but rather withdrawal. Quote, before the creation of the universe, Ein Sof withdrew itself into its essence, from itself, to itself, within itself. Within its essence, it left an empty space in which it could emanate and create. Unquote. This is known as tsimtsum, a Hebrew word that literally means contraction, but here suggests withdrawal, a withdrawal by which God made room for something other than God. That primordial void carved out by Tsimtsum became the site of creation, no larger than an infinitesimal point in relation to Ein Sof, but spacious enough to house the cosmos. Yet the void was not really empty. It retained a trace, a residue, of the light of Ein Sof, just as the vacuum preceding the Big Bang was not completely empty, but rather in a state of minimum energy, pregnant with creative potential and virtual particles. According to Luria, as Ein Sof began to unfold, a ray of light was channeled into the void through certain vessels. Everything went smoothly at first, but some of the vessels were not translucent enough and could not withstand the power of the light. They shattered. Most of the light then returned to its infinite source, to the mother's womb. But the rest, 
falling as sparks, along with shards of the shattered vessels, was eventually trapped in material existence. Our task, according to Kabbalah, is to liberate these sparks of light, to restore them to divinity. By living ethically and spiritually, we raise the sparks and thereby bring about tikkun, the repair or mending of the cosmos. If the vessels had not broken, our world of multiplicity would not exist. We exist, you might say, because we have lost oneness. Modern cosmology has a theory that parallels this breaking of the vessels. It's known as the theory of broken symmetry. Symmetry can be unstable. Picture yourself at an elegant wedding dinner or bar bat mitzvah. You're sitting with a dozen guests around a circular table. Champagne glasses have been placed precisely between each dinner plate and the next. Perfect right-left symmetry. A waiter comes and fills the glasses with champagne, and everyone sits, waiting for someone else to lift a glass. You're a little thirsty. Knowing that those pink bubbles won't last forever, you decide to take a sip. But which champagne glass should you pick? Not fully versed in the rules of etiquette, you could as easily choose the glass to your left as well as to your right. Either way, as soon as you reach for one or the other, the symmetry is broken. Unless everyone else does exactly what you do, someone's going to have to reach across the table to get a glass. Let's take a more mundane example. Imagine that you're holding a handful of sharpened pencils, just snug enough that they stand on their points. Now let go. For a moment, the pencils remain balanced, rotationally symmetrical. Looking down from above, you see a perfect circle of pencil erasers. But of course, that symmetry is quickly broken, and the pencils fall into a tangle. The pencils are a metaphor for the universe. The jumble of fallen pencils is our universe today. The symmetrical bundle is the universe in its original state. One of the challenges of science is to discover the symmetry hidden within the tangle of ordinary life. The universe began in an extremely hot state of utmost simplicity and symmetry. As it expands and cools, this perfect symmetry is broken, giving rise to the world of diversity and structure that we inhabit. To us today, the fundamental forces of nature appear distinct. Gravity, electromagnetism, and two other forces known as the strong and weak nuclear forces. The balance between these four forces determines the existence and the behavior of everything in the visible universe. Originally, though, all four forces were linked, and today scientists dream of finding a single set of equations describing all four. By colliding subatomic particles, physicists have discovered that at extremely high temperatures, the differences between those forces begin to disappear. One more act of imagination. Imagine yourself journeying back in time, 
closer and closer to the moment of the Big Bang. The further you go, the hotter and denser the universe becomes, and broken symmetries are restored. You go back millions, billions of years. Finally, you reach the tiniest fraction of time that a physicist can imagine, 10 to the minus 43 second after the Big Bang. That's one ten millionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the beginning. Earlier than this is hard to probe. <laughs> Why? The density of matter becomes so great that the structure, perhaps the meaning of space and time, just break down. At this point, all interactions between the fundamental forces are indistinguishable. Perfect symmetry. How did the symmetry of the beginning become so disguised over the course of time? As the universe expands and cools, the radiation and particles lose energy. The various forces become distinct. Meanwhile, matter is also losing its oneness. By the time the universe is just one billionth of a second old, there are four forces and two dozen kinds of elementary particles. It's this fracturing of symmetry that creates the particles of matter and energy found today around us and within us. Perfect symmetry sounds alluring, but it is sterile. If the primal force had not broken into four forces, the universe would be a very different place if it existed at all. Tiny deviations from that complete oneness now give rise to nuclei, atoms, molecules, then galaxies, stars, planets, people. We exist today in our present condition with all our flaws and imperfections because of broken symmetry. Just as Kabbalah teaches that our jumbled, blemished reality derives from the breaking of the vessels. Broken symmetry and the breaking of the vessels are distinct theories, each generated by a different approach to the question of the origin of the universe. But their resonance is intriguing. The human mind, apparently, has devised alternative strategies, scientific and spiritual, to search for our origin. The two are distinct, but complementary. Science enables us to probe infinitesimal particles of matter and energy, helping us search unimaginable depths of outer space, understanding each in light of the other as we grope our way back toward the beginning. Spirituality guides us through inner space, challenging us to retrace our path to oneness and to live in the light of what we discover. As we've seen, the Jewish mystics picture divine sparks in everything that exists. A scientist would say there is energy latent in subatomic particles. The spiritual task is to raise the sparks, to restore the world to God, to become aware that every single thing we do or see or touch or imagine is part of the oneness, a pattern of energy. Raising the sparks is a powerful metaphor. 
It transforms religion from a list of do's and don'ts, a list of dogmas, into spiritual adventure. God is not some separate being up there. She is right here in the bark of a tree, in a friend's voice, in a stranger's eye. The world is teeming with God. Since God is in everything, you can serve God through everything. In looking for the divine spark, we discover that what's ordinary is actually spectacular. The holy deed is doing what needs to be done now. The world is fractured, and God needs us to mend it. By mending the world socially, economically, politically, we mend God, whose sparks lie scattered everywhere. But we shouldn't fool ourselves. There will never be a complete tikkun, a complete mending of the world. Things will never be perfect. Society will never be completely just. How will it all end? Is there a Messiah coming to redeem us? Messiahs captivate our imagination because the world is so unfair. History is so fickle. When the Messiah comes, we are told everything will be set right. Good will finally triumph. Evil will be eliminated. That would be nice. But is it the way things work? What's the long-range future of our planet, according to science? Here's the forecast. Our sun is about five billion years old, middle-aged and reliable. But five billion years from now, the hydrogen fuel in the sun's core will burn out. The core will sag while the atmosphere of the sun will mushroom engulfing several of its closest planets, probably including Earth. Gradually, most of its atmosphere will fall away, leaving a hot, dense ball of inert matter. Life will not necessarily come to an end. By then, human beings will have developed the technology to move to another, safer solar system. Meanwhile, here we are. We still have quite a while until the year five billion. <laughs> there will be no final perfection. No one's arranged the future ahead of time. Nothing is completely preordained. Chance will play a leading role in the way things unfold, as it always has. We should learn to negotiate with chance. We should work on mending our own brokenness, our social fabric, our planet, as best we can. And what kind of God can we believe in? The Hebrew word emunah, belief, originally meant trust and faithfulness, both human and divine. Without trusting another person, we cannot love. Without trusting others, we cannot build or sustain community. But how can we trust the cosmos or this God of oneness? We can trust that we are part of something greater, a vast web of existence, constantly expanding and evolving. When we gaze at the nighttime sky, we can ponder that we are made of elements forged within stars, out of particles born in the Big Bang. We can sense that we are looking 
back home. The further we gaze into space, the further we see back into time. For example, if we see a galaxy 10 million light years away, we're really seeing that galaxy as it was 10 million years ago, because it's taken that long for its ancient light to arrive here. Beyond any star we will ever identify, beyond any quasar, lies the horizon of space-time, 14 billion light years away. But neither God nor the Big Bang is that far away. The Big Bang didn't happen somewhere out there, outside of us. Rather, we began inside the Big Bang. We now embody its primordial energy. The Big Bang has never stopped. And what about God? God is not an object, a thing, not a fixed destination. There's no definite way to reach God. But then again, you don't need to reach something that's everywhere. God is not somewhere else hidden from us. God is right here hidden from us. We're enslaved by our routines, rushing from event to event, from one chore to another. We rarely let ourselves pause to notice the splendor right in front of us. Our sense of wonder has shriveled, victimized by our pace of life. How then can we find God? A clue is provided by one of the many names of Shekhinah, the feminine aspect of God the divine presence. In Kabbalah, she is called ocean, well, garden, apple orchard. She's also called zot, which means simply this. God is right here in this very moment, fresh and unexpected, taking us by surprise. God is this. Okay, thank you. Thank you. All the best. Thank you.